Resistance is everywhere, but everywhere a surprise. Why? What explains the downright shock among the powerful when confronted by the most human of demands? For life, for freedom, and equality? Any system of domination relies, to some degree at least, on the pretension that those in power deserve to be there, that their rule is by definition legitimate and good. And more often than not, those in power are persuaded by comforting stories they tell themselves. This book is about the kind of hubris that such comforts produce among the powerful and that makes them blind to those who would oppose their rule. Thank you to Oakley Chicarello Mar for that short reading from the opening pages of Anticolonial Eruptions. You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Gio Marr, who teaches in the Department of Political Science at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Gio is the author of numerous articles in academic venues, as well as popular and radical political media. He has written five books, We Created Chavez, A People's History of the Bolivarian Revolution, and Decolonizing Dialectics, both with Duke University Press. And with Verso, he has published Building the Commune and A World Without Police. We are talking today about his newest book, Anticolonial Eruptions, Racial Hubris and the Cunning of Resistance, which is due out in late March 2022 with the University of California Press. Gio, it's good to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. We appreciate you. Really appreciate you making the time and to see you. We're not recording video, but it's good to see you. Yes, it's great to see you as well. So, um, yeah, I wanted to, obviously we're here to talk about your uh, forthcoming book, new book in a month and a half, uh, Anti-Colonial Eruptions. And I wanted to start out with a really broad question and just really invite you to reflect on the place of this book uh, in your own trajectory as a book writer. I mean, you've written a number of articles, both in, in popular radical media and academic journals. But um, when I think about your the trajectory of your books, it's really interesting for me to see both the variety of the books and a sense of unity that underlies them. You know, if I think about the We Created Chavez book and the Decolonizing Dialectics book, they're about the possibility of, of telling different stories about the present, about the future. And in that way, what I would call, they have a kind of classic uh, sense of prophetic, right? The critique of the present for the sake of the future. And they're visionary books. As much as we created Chavez as as a people's history, it's also a people's history that's very much oriented towards the future. Um, And I would say the same about decolonizing dialectics. And in building the commune in a world without police, uh, they're wider audience books uh, in many ways, but they're also alongside the ethical injunctions that I think is a shared value system, clearly, with We Created Chavez and Decolonizing Dialectics. Um, it, they're really books about concrete steps. So 
toward toward that different kind of world. And so we're, I'm curious how you see anti-colonial eruptions in relationship to those works, because it is conceptual, but it also has real fire to it about contemporary politics. It starts out with an evocation of George Floyd, and that never really leaves the text. Yeah, no, no. And I'm glad that you can see the unity in what might seem a sort of eccentric you know, collection of, of interests and, and texts. I often uh, see those, you know, you know, the books that I've written as, uh, you know, on the one hand, moving from the theoretical toward the concrete, and on the other hand, moving from the concrete toward the theoretical, but doing so in different degrees with different sort of centers of gravity. Always for me, and this is why I, you know, moved toward theory to begin with, the question was really always one of, you know, the fact that we can't really even grasp the concrete without really interrogating the categories through which we do that. Right. Or we misunderstand things, you know, uh, reduce them to, to simple objects rather than being sort of in motion themselves. I think, you know, in a way, this book is, uh, you know, as you suggest, somewhere uh, in between. Um, on the one hand, it, it, it does, you know, make sort of, you know, significant theoretical moves. Um, and, and on top of that, a lot of the concreteness is also very historical, right? So you're talking about slave rebellions, talking about anti-colonial resistance um, in ways that might seem distant uh, from the present. Um, but I think part of the imperative is precisely to, on the one hand, orient ourselves toward, uh, toward that present um, and to sort of, uh, you know, gird us a bit for the tasks you know, required of, of contemporary, um, politics. Um, you know, so, you know, of course is a text about, you know, eruptions from the unseen underground and, and the, the fact that these sort of resound and echo in mainstream discourse, what that discourse can tell us, right? When we say that Minneapolis erupted, what is it that is being suggested by the evocation of the volcano? Um, and, and you know, what I argue is that there's something about the hiddenness, about the concealedness of this struggle, about the fact that it's so obvious uh, to many why Minneapolis and the country and the world erupted, and yet so and yet so many remain oblivious to that. Um, and and I do think that reorientation, um, on the one hand, of a sort of awareness of that blindness, um, awareness mm -hmm. of that tension, um, and also an insistence that that that, that tension offers something to be uh not optimistic about i don't think that's the right term yeah. um you know but you know but that allows for an orientation toward the present um that is on some level hopeful yeah i mean it's you started to talk there about uh this you know the the title right eruptions um which as you talk through the book um you know you you I mean, just to pick two, you talk about Césaire's Notebook of Return to the Native Land, as well as the geography of, of, of Chiapas, um, to sort of think about, you know, or to sort of evoke this notion of eruption, right, in terms of, of figures of geography, figures in poetry, but also for Césaire, of course, that's the landscape of Martinique. But, you know, I'm so... Yeah, I would, I would love to hear more about that notion of eruption. Mm -hmm. And it is really interesting if I could just add this in maybe as a, as a companion frame that you open with that evocation of, of, of George Floyd and the protests after. It does make for me a really interesting case for thinking seriously about colonialism and anti-colonial struggle in the context of the contemporary 
you know, uh, racial life of the United States? Because I think it's a longstanding question. You know, can you talk about African Americans as a colonized people? Yeah. That's been a, a conversation since 19th century, at least, if not mm-hmm. before, in terms of uh, black thinkers and black liberation visions and struggles. I think this notion of eruption is a really interesting way of thinking about that continuity between, say, the settler colonialism of southern Mexico, mm-hmm. and if we want to think about that in the Zapatista uprising, or the colonialism and uprisings in um, the French Caribbean and Césaire's mm-hmm. work. Um, and so that, you know, for me, it's always what are the continuities between yeah. these kinds of settler colonial and and administration from abroad models of colonialism and the condition of 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 you know of victims of of racial violence in the United States, mm-hmm. you know. So I, I want to hear you talk a little bit more about this 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 idea of eruption, but also I guess I would add into that. I mean, do you think it helps us think about how colonialism functions in our everyday life in the United States in ways that George Floyd's murder and the protests after really surface? Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are great questions. Um, I, I, you know, the figure of the eruption first, I think, came to my attention by this sort of, you know, haunting you know, quote from C.L.R. James in the Black Jacobins, you know, you know, which says, you know, the colon, you know, yep. the colonists, you know, slept on the edge of Vesuvius and didn't even realize it. Um, it's a reformulation yeah. of something that Mirabeau, I think, once said. Um, and, you know, my question was always, well, why didn't they, why didn't they realize it? You know, what was it yep. that was so concealed? Um, you know, and then sort of beginning to play with this figure of the volcano and to look through references to the volcano, you find that the you know, that volcanic eruptions and, you know, sort of broader seismic imagery becomes so central to describing the unthinkability of resistance against slavery, you know, white supremacy and colonial mm-hmm. domination. Um, and, and for for reasons that, you know, I'll circle back around to are very, very sh- similar, right? Shared. Uh, reasons. And so you have this, you know, like bit in Absalom, Absalom, where, you know, the narrator is on a, a Haitian plantation and it says something like he, he's overseeing the slaves, of course, but he's sort of underseeing at the same time. He doesn't see what he's overseeing yeah. as he undersees the, the sort of, uh, you know, subterranean resistance that's about to break forth, like, like a volcano mm-hmm. and, and spew sort of hell. Um, and this is in- incredibly common. You find it across references to anti-colonial resistance to, you know, slave rebellions so often described as volcanoes because what, what uh, you know, what those describing it and what those characterizing it are trying to say is that they couldn't see it coming. They're trying to, in a way, reveal their own blindness. Um, and it's a blindness that's racial and colonial um, because mm-hmm. it has everything to do with the reduction of the objects of, of white supremacy, slavery, colonialism, to mere objects. And this, of course, I mean, this is this cuts deep into, you know, histories of slavery in the United States, for example, and the question of, you know, are slaves truly happy? Or so if they're happy, why are they mm-hmm. revolting and rebelling? And so there's this sort of, uh, you know, you know, this is real, uh, you know, div- you know, sort of psychic rupture that emerges in slave master consciousness, and this sort of bipolarity that swings wildly back and forth that I track. And so much of it has to do with this question of the, the underground. Now, what does it tell us, um, you know, it, about the unity of these struggles? Because this is very much a book about the unity of yeah. global struggles against colonialism mm-hmm. and white supremacy. I think, you know, and, and there's something contextual to this, I guess. I think we're in a moment um, 
where on the one hand struggles are on the agenda, where struggles are occurring jointly every day, where there's, you know, deepening solidarity between Black Lives Matter and migrant movements and Palestinian struggles. And yet we have certain kind of theoretical approaches that want to underline the incommensurability of these struggles. Um, yeah. We know that we have, you know, incredibly fraught histories and tensions, uh, you know, across these struggles. But what I want to really underline in this book is the fact that you know, colonialism uh, as a broader structure of domination um, is precisely about the generation of non-being, what I, you know, to, to borrow mm -hmm. Fanon's word, right? So you got Fanon and black skin, white masks talking generally about legacies of slavery and generally about white supremacy and anti-black racism and describing this as a zone of non-being. But then you have, of course, the same Fanon writing in the context of colonial Algeria just a few years later, honestly, uh, you know, and, you know, and talking about the ways in which the colonized, you know, disappears into the landscape and into the background. In other words, these are different forms of non-being and non-existence um, that have different historical contours. We know that, that, of course, between, you know, U.S. style chattel slavery and the specific legal apparatus, I think that was developed to consciously, self-consciously harden, you know, uh, the racial binary. Um, we didn't see the same thing precisely in Canada, say, or in Latin America, of course, where, you know, logics of, of white supremacy operated very differently. But ultimately, these are grounded on non-existence. Ultimately, when the Zapatistas rise up in 1994 in Southern Mexico, they say, listen, like we exist, but we don't exist. We do not exist. Mm -hmm. We are subterranean. We are underground. And of course, they evoke the same language that Fanon evoked, this underground of non-being. And they evoke the same language that the slave masters and the colonizers themselves evoke when they're denouncing these, um, you know, these moments of rebellion. Yeah, I mean, it makes a really, you know, what you what you said there for me is really interesting because it it answers one of the questions that I had, right, which is, how do you understand or use this notion of colonialism when historically, of course, there's such a massive difference in the experiences of colonialism, mm -hmm. both in the colonizer's imagination of the sort of administration from abroad where you could negotiate independence and others where people were going to bleed by the thousands, right? Um, you know, the you know, place of say of India and the British imagination or Algeria and the French imagination mm -hmm. and so forth. Um, and so what I hear you saying is that that's what, what binds these different forms of colonialism, whether it's Portuguese colonialism in the 16th century or, you know, Algeria in the middle of the 20th century, what binds these together is the production of this notion of a, of a zone of non-being. Yeah, and in part, this is this is part of the you know the the way that colonialism produces other things, right? It's part of the way that it produces wealth. For Fanon, it's an essential part of that. He's like, you can't engage in this style of domination without dehumanizing the people involved, right? Without attempting at least to reduce them, um, you know, and you know, and so that's I think I think part of the process, uh, you know, for him. And again, the modalities of that are incredibly different outpost colonialism, settler colonialism in the the way we understand it in the sort of British colony sense, you know, and, and you know, even myself, I would stumble over the question of, well, of course, Latin America was settled, um, but it's a very, it's very different from the, the contemporary academic framing of what settler colonialism means. It looks very different yeah. in the Latin American context as well, because these are all parts of broader histories, right? Because 
you know, I think this framework, you know, sp broadly speaking, this framework of non-being is invented in the colonial encounter in the Americas, um, and then takes on different frames, right? We, and, and many of us, I think, know very well the fact that so indigenous Americans are formally promoted to the level of humanity um, in a series of debates in the, you know, within the Spanish church. Um, at the same time that, you know, black slavery is endorsed and, you know, upheld. Um, but that, you know, of course, even today, that non, that inhumanity, that non-existence is still very much the, the rule of the day when it comes to all Afro-Indigenous, dark-skinned in the poorest, you know, sectors of, mm -hmm. uh, of these societies. You know, flipping that around, I was always struck by the fact that, of, of course, you know, like living in Philadelphia and looking at the ways in which, you know, the role of violence in the police in slicing up the city and governing its divisions, you know, and its borders and its boundaries and in fueling sort of primitive accumulation through uh, gentrification. I, I don't know how I could not have thought of Fanon's description of the colonial world as being a fundamentally divided one. And this is just, again, this is one of those reminders that, you know, we're t often told that colonialism on the one hand and anti-black racism on the other are very different phenomena but we have so many resources to draw to draw upon in which you know fanon is a black and a colonized subject um and yeah. when he is diagnosing for example anti-blackness he doesn't extract that from the colonial frame right and yeah. um it's just that there are sort of different moments in his work where he's sort of emphasizing you know the different elements you know and contours of these uh, dynamics yeah no, that's really interesting. And you know, when you you know, mentioned gentrification and and primitive accumulation and in Philadelphia or you know, any any city in the United States, clearly, um, you know, I'll, I, I always encourage my students or just ask them to to take as a thought experiment instead of saying gentrification. What if we called it ethnic cleansing? Yeah, or land just a destruction yeah. of yeah. of people and cultural roots. You know, yeah. for example you know, the, the richness of black Brooklyn, mm -hmm. and then the displacement in gentrification, what we call gentrification is an ethnic cleansing. Yeah. But what you're, I, I like what, how, the way you put that, that part of the, the shadow, not even the shadow, but part of the continuity with colonialism there is the production of the ethnos that could be ethnically cleansed. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Such that we could even come up with terms like gentrification that slowly become uh newspaper headlines, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than Brooklyn ethnically cleansed, right? Oh, absolutely. Or call it settler colonial whites in Brooklyn or, mm -hmm. or, you know, some neighborhood in Philadelphia. I mean, I think these vocabularies, the way we, they, they conceal, it's really interesting because part of what I think you've said here, but also comes out so clearly in the book is that the production of whether it's the colonizer's consciousness, right? That naivete, that, 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 you know, uh, you know, living comfortably on Vesuvius, mm -hmm. yeah. right? Um, yeah, that the, what we might call today white innocence, right? That mm -hmm. white innocence is premised precisely on finding ways of driving things underground yeah. that eventually explode. And so I think that that's what I wanted to hear you talk about. And I'm so glad you talked in the way you did about eruptions both here and in the book, mm -hmm. because I think it gets to that, the, the, I don't know if it's di a dialectic, but some sort of dynamic interchange around the production of white innocence, but mm. also the possibility of radical uprising. Yeah, no, certainly, and and, and you know, uh, you know, and just having this conversation has me thinking again. You know, I'm thinking in terms of uh, of Philadelphia, and 
you know, every once in a while you'll have a situation. I remember a few years ago where a Temple student was walking down the street and a young black woman um, hit them in the head with a brick, right? Um, and the, the it's, of course, an incredibly troubling, you know, and, you know, devastating, you know, moment and image. And at the same time, the innocence surrounding that in the narrative, right, is, you know, you're literally colonizing the entirety of North Philadelphia and, and you're surprised when little sort of like spurts of lava shoot up and burn you, right? Yeah. Like you're literally, or right now there's a, you know, there's a struggle over one of the last public housing, you know, uh, spaces in, you know, the, at the edge of University City. And again, it's presented in a very sanitized way, as you put it, a very innocent way that they're you know, getting rid of this public housing. It's being bought by developers. That public housing was the product of a negotiated uh, solution to the expulsion of what was known as the Black Bottoms uh, in, you know, in West Philly, um, hmm. which is now University City, um, the creation and the building of this huge science center and the you know, displacement of the entire Black population only a few blocks west into this uh, public housing. And here, you know, I even mentioned in the book, right, because here the image of the Black Bottoms is precisely a, a, you know, a, you know, a geographic you know, and, you know, topographic, as it were, uh, image that also speaks to the reality of, um, you know, of black and brown populations being contained to low-lying land, mm -hmm. right, which we know very well from yeah. Katrina, which we know very well from so many, you know, other, you know, uh, moments in our sort of climate catastrophe, um, that these are the yeah. communities that, that suffer the most. Um, and so I think this, you know, this, this topographic question is also, uh, you know, part of the, the image. And, and you know, one other piece when it comes to white innocence is this, you know, and it, you, you got me thinking about it by talking about decolonizing dialectics, because part of the story of that book and these books share some things, even if this one is, I think, less diagnostic and more sort of, you know, uh, exhortative, you know, uh, in a sense, yeah. is that, you know, part of what, you know, I'm saying about Hegel in, in decolonizing dialectics, even though I don't talk about him too much, is that there's a certain presumption of symmetry um, and smooth reciprocity in mm -hmm. Hegel's system of dialectics when reality is much more one-sided, right? Um, and when you've yeah. got this kind of one-sided reality that's unrecognized, what you have is the displacement of an entire mode of, you know, thinking and resistance, but also categories of people to this sort of unseen realm. And so in the same way, I think that Hegel remains innocent and unable to see things even that we know he saw like the Haitian revolution um, and unable to incorporate them concretely into his thinking of the world and what it would actually mean for his dialectic very much in the same way. I think that, that white innocence plays out with regard to concrete struggles, the shock. And that's part of what I try to document in the book to say, why is it that when people rise up in, you know, black communities in the U S or in impoverished, poor or indigenous communities across the world, what explains the shock, right? Like, you know, these people were yeah. poor, you know, these people were suffering and, and, you know, having to, yeah. you know, um, simply, you know, swallow some of the worst living conditions and accept it as their fate, but they didn't. And by doing this very human thing of resisting, you know, and yet you're still shocked about it. Yeah. Well, I think that transitions in some ways to, uh, to another question I wanted to ask you. Uh, it's a vocabulary question. Um, which is basically, you know, what what is uh, this notion of cunning? 
you know, why did you use it? Um, what work do you think it does in the book? I mean, obviously a reader will get that, but um, I'd love to hear you talk about that. I mean, personally, I remember, you know, it was a number of years ago now hearing you talk about the cunning of history at a uh, comparative decolonization conference that I co-hosted at Amherst College. Thought it was just a, a phenomenal reworking of this notion of cunning. Um, so I was thrilled when it popped up in the book to see how, you know, it fit in this larger project, you know, um, as part of both a historical and conceptual sort of analytic, but also, as you say, you know, the ex exhortation character or manifesto character of the book. I mean, it strikes me as both conceptually really important notion. It's certainly descriptively really important, but it also has, I, I for me anyway, as a reader, like it, it gathers to it a lot of the manifesto character, right? It has a kind of urgency yeah. to it, a kind of energy to it that maybe different terms wouldn't have. So mm -hmm. I just, in some ways, it's an open question, you know, tell me about your use of cunning, mm -hmm. why, how, and to what purposes. But I also just wanted to know, to say, I mean, I find this to be one of the most thrilling parts of the book is getting this into our vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Those of us who work on anti-colonial and decolonial thought, mm -hmm. I think this is one of the major contributions of the book, aside from, you know, one of the other things I loved, as I said before, the sense of continuity it brings to this notion of colonialism, which I think is a hard thing to articulate. Mm -hmm. But this notion of cunning, I think, is a, a really important vocabulary. And so I wanted to give you some space to talk a little bit about that. No, I appreciate that. And, and to be clear, this, you know, it wasn't just that chapter, I think, that had its origins in, in your invitation to that conference. It was the whole book, you know, and, and I was, mm -hmm. you know, trying to th think back on what, uh, what sort of like pattern of firing neurons led me to respond to that invite and say, yes, I'll talk about cunning um, and, you know, mm -hmm. and rework Hegel. Um, but, you know, but for some reason I did, and I'm glad I did because it really, you know, set this all into motion. So thank you for, for that, you know, for, the, you know, for, for helping to bring this uh, into the world in, in a sense, it's, you know, and, and when I say, I think there's something methodologically true about the fact that I say, I can't remember why. Um, but you know, <laughs> and what I mean by that is that it was based yeah. on an intuition that, you know, that Hegel has this notion of the cunning of history or the cunning of reason. And, and, and that notion is both very illuminating and very real um, and also uh, wrong and limited when it comes to the hmm. question of colonialism. Um, it, I say that it, it was an intuition, right? But it's very much built on what I'd already said in decolonizing dialectics, you know, about this one-sidedness, you know, versus reciprocity and the, the sort of blind spots that Hegel has. The way, and so in a certain sense, that was a question of, of reworking the limitations of Hegelian thought around this specific concept, which of course is crucial for Hegel. For Hegel, the cunning of history speaks to the fact that, you know, you see all these sort of wild and irrational things happening in history, that individuals are acting on the basis of a whole bunch of motivations that we can't account for necessarily, that don't seem either rational or that seem rational in the sense of their limited self-interest. But like, you know, he compares it to this process of weaving, you know, where you've got the two pieces of, you know, fabric, one, you know, one held straight and true and one weaving chaotically back and forth. And yet they bring together a tapestry and that tapestry is history. Um, that's what Hegel means by uh, the cunning of history, that behind all of this sort of apparent irrationality, there is some deeper reason. Now, mm -hmm. the intuition, of course, is that it's very hard to convince, you know, uh, enslaved and colonized people that there's a deeper reason behind their historical subjection, right? You know, we're, yeah. we're talking about, you know, communities that underwent a 
vast process of, you know, uh, you know, retrogression, um, you know, that mm -hmm. involves, you know, being decimated, destroyed, brutalized. Um, and, you know, in, in no way would I want to, you know, try to say to those communities that that was all part of the greater working of history toward universal freedom. I mean, it's nonsense. When you yeah. pull that bit away, then you're talking about, well, what is, what is there, right? What is, you know, what is built into this notion of, you know, of cunning. And when you look at the word historically, it's very interesting because on the one hand, the word cunning is directly derived from the word for knowledge, right? It's got to do with knowledge. Um, and, you know, very early on, there was a moment in which it wasn't really clear which way the term, you know, would, uh, you know, would tip, whether it would be good use of knowledge or a bad use of knowledge. Ultimately, cunning becomes a word for a negative use of knowledge, um, a mm -hmm. sort of deceptive, sneaky, sly use of knowledge. Um, deployment of that knowledge. Um, but, uh, you know, again, you, you have a sort of mainstream history of the concept that, that in a way sees that shift as slightly arbitrary, um, or sees it as, uh, you know, kind of, um, you know, just something that happens within the, you know, the use of the term cunning. But when you look at it historically, you see that that split coincides with colonization and, and you know, racial slavery. Right. Um, and so from that point onward, I argue cunning becomes something that is, of course, not always, but very heavily associated with the sneaky use of knowledge by the oppressed and the dominated. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. The ways in which they have a hidden knowledge and deploy it in struggle um, in which, you know, and, and, and the, the fact that this evokes a distrust from those who are able to name things in the world, right? And call them cunning, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, they don't call it, of course, they don't call slave resistance and slave rebellions, uh, you know, the fullest expression of knowledge, you know, and, and human universality, yeah. you know, like they, they call it cunning, uh -huh. right? Um, <laughs> and that means something strategic as well, right? Which is the fact that, uh, you know, as, you know, we could on the one hand refuse that name, right? Or we can embrace it, right? And Harry, Harry Jacob mm -hmm. says, of course, we're cunning, right? Like it is, we're yep. pushed into a situation that generates a certain kind of uh, resistance that is sort of subterranean, that is not so obvious, um, that is sneaking around the, the structures of power, that is sort of in, you know, the, the frame of like Scott's hidden transcript, right? Um, and, you know, mm -hmm. using that and taking advantage precisely, and this is what I mean by cunning, taking advantage of the blindness of the, the dominant, yep. the blindness of the order, using those shadows, using that obscurity as a kind of launching pad um, for struggle. Um, and again, just to quickly touch on, you know, the way, you know, as, as you asked, you know, the question of what this means for colonialism as a broader framework for understanding, mm -hmm. You know, indigenous people were understood as cunning, were called cunning. Latin American, you know, poor communities, you know, poor, um, you know, and darker skinned communities across, uh, you know, the Spanish empire were called cunning. Um, black slaves are called cunning. Women are called cunning. Jews are called cunning. And so we're talking about something that coincides yeah. at its broadest sense with domination. And here's where I kind of part ways though with Scott, because it's not just about domination, it's about the specificity of a kind of racial domination and colonial domination mm -hmm. that then, you know, weighs even more heavily on the word. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, as I said in, in just raising this issue or asking a question, I do think that the introduction of this notion of cunning into our vocab critical vocabulary and thinking about issues of colonialism, uh, racial violence, racial subjugation is uh, 
you know, on the one hand, it's a manifesto book. It's, um, it's not as short as it seems. I have to say, I looked at it and I was like, Oh, it's a short book. And I started reading. I was like, no, this is a, this is a, 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 a very thick read. I don't want to say dense, but very mm-hmm. thick read in the sense of making you pause along the way. But if I, I have to say, as someone who works in a sort of parallel field, right, which is colonialism, anti-colonialism, decolonization on the cultural side rather than the political side, mm-hmm. the way this notion of cunning sort of moves across, can move across and as a critical vocabulary, uh, the cultural and the political is really interesting to me because, you know, I th- it, when I was reading that stuff on cunning, and I, it came to mind when you gave the talk uh, back at Amherst College, but certainly in the book and now, especially hearing you talk about it, Ellison ends Invisible Man with an evocation of lower frequencies. Yeah. That whole yeah. book is about these multiple ways of, of, of thinking about expressive life mm-hmm. as forms of cunning yeah. and thinking about that as linked to, as you say, you know, uh, you know, indigenous people in a sort of racial subjugation exploitation schema, Latin Americans, mm-hmm. the poor Jews, women. I mean, it really, I think then that way is such a promising concept. If that gets lifted out of this book, yeah. it's not in the title, but if it gets lifted out of the book, I think this is this is one of the the most exciting contributions it makes. It opens up really new horizons. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm glad. And of course, and the reason it's on the title is for marketing reasons. I'll be clear about that. It was, sure. and I thought for you know, and 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 I myself, I think I'm very sort of, um, you know, agnostic when it comes to these questions because I, I do recognize that the the conceptual work around cunning for me is crucial, for you is crucial, but maybe it's not crucial for everyone that I want to read the book. And so one yeah. of the questions was how to embed that in, you know, in a broader, uh, you know, argument with a broader frame. Um, and so, you know, foregrounding the eruption and then bringing in the cunning of that eruption, I think is crucial. And again, the point of that is, is precisely to, you know, to speak to, on the one hand, to not shy away from uh, maybe the language uh, of the colonizer insofar as it speaks to a real anxiety and fear, um, right? You know, it's mm-hmm. like, I think our job is not to uh, convince, you know, again, this and this touches on lots of questions, questions of violence and nonviolence and other things, right? Like it's our goal is not to convince the system that we are well-behaved or that, yeah. you know, specifically those most oppressed by these systems of domination are going to use um, only the channels offered to them to resist because that's precisely the point is that those channels yeah. are part of this structure of domination. That's the fundamental point of Fanon's reformulation of Hegel's dialectic is that an explosion is necessary um, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. it is through that explosion, which is not a clean phenomenon and not a you know a simple one from his subjective perspective, he begins to reconceptualize and reformulate a way uh, forward. But it's also to say ultimately that it is a way forward. Um, you know, And here's, I think, where I part ways with some of the sort of self-styled pessimism of, of the present is that, you know, I mean, first of all, Fanon was never a pessimist um, um, in the same breath and for the same reasons that he was never an optimist, right? Because he understood the terrain yeah. of the world as, as you know, this constant struggle of the, the continuous war, you know, against white supremacy and global colonialism and oppression, and that he dedicated his, his life to doing that, right? Not to yeah. Uh, yeah. decrying it as, as an impossibility. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, 
And on the matter of the title, I don't think anyone would uh, argue against anti-colonial eruptions as a title. It's a fantastic title. Um, and as I say, I, mean, I think when you when you eruption and cunning together make for this really interesting, you know, the production of white innocence and and resistance to that in the eruption, but also cunning as a way of thinking both about the casting of of the oppressed right as deserving their oppression or, mm-hmm. or being you know not being worthy of the sort of the zone of being yeah. but also the way cunning plays out as as the possibilities especially at the cultural level the possibilities of uh world making mm-hmm. alongside yeah. the colonizer you know that that gets to the mm-hmm. cultural question but on the political question um that runs parallel um, I, th- I think it illuminates so much. Yeah, and, and, and to get you know, the, the, I mean, and I don't, you know, you brought up Ellison, and I, you know, I, I am still struggling with the question of Ellison, right? Because I do, I, I create space for a very sharp critique of Ellison in the book, um, mm-hmm. you know, in the suggestion by you know, by Sam Greenlee that that Ellison wanted his ability, um, and I think there's something to that, right? And, and part of it speaks to the question of sort of you know <clears throat> forcibly invisibilized people. Of course, there's a this, there's this idea of, of of struggling for visibility, right? And again, this is again, this is cultural code, right? For struggling for citizenship, struggling for rights, struggling for mm-hmm. equality within the terms of the existing system. Um, and yet, part of what you know, Greenlee's critique of uh, you know of Ellison w- seeks to draw out is the strategic use of invisibility, right? I think that's the, yeah. the sort of center of the book is to say, what if we also, at least, even if not exclusively, think in terms of what. Uh, you know, what advantages are offered by that invisibility? Um, what advantages mm-hmm. are offered by, which I think also can be reformulated more broadly as um, thinking outside and beyond the existing parameters of democracy, of racial capitalism, of yeah. what we understand to be equality, which has never been a full equality. Um, and, you know, I think has the potential to kind of, in, in some ways, explode those those structures in productive ways. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think a lot about the, the conditions under which visibility is possible. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's essentially what you're saying, you know, is as, 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 <laughs> as opaque as an essay can be. I think one of the real points of clarity in Spivak's can the subaltern speak mm-hmm. is, you know, to be heard is to be heard under certain conditions yeah. in which you're actually just made invisible again. And I think these notions uh, that's this notion of eruption is so important because eruption is not about visibility. Mm-hmm. It's about literally completely reforming the terrain of the earth, yeah. and I, that's that for me is if we if cunning and eruption could come to take the place in our critical conversations, mm-hmm. take the place of, of visibility, or at least work alongside visibility. Yeah. Uh, I think we would have a, a, a much more expansive and mm-hmm. volatile in the productive sense, volatile sense of what struggle means. And these are absolutely crucial questions for the present, I think, because, and, and this is a fundamental point that needs to be said over and over again, because, because of this constant tendency to uh, obscure it, which is that, you know, we're not talking about Black Lives Matter because people asked nicely or lobbied or, you know, elected lower, you know, officials to lower, you know, offices. We're talking about it because of an explosion. And it was in that explosion. This has always seemed so obvious to me. And yet, you know, it's like you're banging your head against the wall because the entire structure of, you know, the narrative of U.S. life and politics is to is to prevent this, you know, the, this argument from, you know, from holding water, which is that, you know, 
and it gets right to the irrationality of so-called riots, right? This, this idea that yeah. people are acting irrationally when it's literally the only thing that's ever worked, right? Mm -hmm. And working is a complicated thing, right? Because it hasn't worked to suddenly and miraculously create a system of, of total equality, but it's been the only thing that has created even the slightest bit of visibility, right? And again, yep. maybe we don't want to call that visibility, but it's created leverage, uh, you know, for suddenly the political system responded to the demands of black people, right? Suddenly overnight, everyone was talking about it in ways that, you know, they had mm -hmm. refused to for decades. And so, um, you know, I, yeah, again, I think that the, the critical and concrete purchase of these questions in the present is, is, is important. And is this a sense in which, you know, I mean, obviously eruptions, reshape the terrain mm -hmm. right and it's something really interesting you know you bring up i mean it's in the book too of course uh black lives matter even just that phrase yeah. is an eruption mm -hmm. yeah. in the united states i mean it's literally is a three-word phrase for i don't even want to say the right wing but also for the center mm -hmm. of 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 white america mm -hmm. to evoke fear and loathing yeah. and rage yeah. Right. And I so mean, it's uh, it is a kind of eruption I mean, part, <laughs> all by itself, in, just as a phrase. And then when part, you add to that riots. If, I mean, in, in fundamentally, this is part because like, so from the perspective of someone like Fanon, right, like he might in his in a cynical moment, right, respond to that phrase by saying, no, they don't. Right. Like by saying, no, actually, they don't. But that's actually the critical point of the phrase, right, is to insist uh -huh. that, that that Black Lives Matter in a context in which we know they're systematically devalued, right? And I think that's the, right, as you say, the eruptive power of the phrase. Yeah. I mean, I'd say it to my students all the time. We use that phrase in this classroom as if it doesn't overturn the entire world. Yeah. But it does. It absolutely does. And but, again, and to, to not nerd out about this shit, like, but like, you know, again, it's like, it disrupts the smooth universality of our perception of rights and democracy, right? Absolutely. Because, you know, uh, and here again, on a strategic level, I always hate to play defense, right? Like I hate, you know, I don't think we should act as if critical race theory does not disrupt the structures of our worlds, right? Because it does, yes. right? And I, and I think these apologetics of saying, well, no, it's really not that radical, don't worry about it, I think is a, a miscalculation. And I think something similar happens with this. I mean, as you just described, right? The incorporation of it into, well, no, it doesn't mean that white lives don't matter. Yes, motherfucker, it does. Like it means that the that the, the structure of universality is built around whiteness and that to say black lives matter is to disrupt that universal plane, right? And to fracture it and to break it. Um, and, you know, and I think, I mean, again, I understand why people play defense when it comes to these things, concretely, strategically, mm -hmm. um, but I think mm -hmm. we should also remember that inclusion, incorporation, diversity is always this and must be this sort of radically transformative process, right? It's got to change the way matter resonates, mm -hmm. what it means to matter. Mm -hmm. And that's the, you know, that's the way the phrase itself I don't know if it's even dialectical, but a, a kind of almost like a negative dialectics. It arrives from back, black lives to the term matter. Mattering. And all of a sudden it implodes that idea of mattering mm -hmm. or explodes, right? Because it's an up, uprising rather than a down press. But uh, it's an eruption that then what it means to matter is going to be fundamentally different. And, mm -hmm. you know, as I know this is a sentiment we share around whiteness, I mean, the idea of, of well, white lives matter too. It's like the white in that. <laughs> is exactly the conditions yeah. that, that conditions the term matter in a way that, you know, 
I, you, we, <laughs> you know, I think people stroke, you know, envisioning something more radical, yeah. that idea of mattering can't be tethered to that term white. Yeah, absolutely. And every time, and that's where I think it's like, you know, it's not that people miss the point, but I, because I think people intuitively get it when they say, mm-hmm. when they say white lives matter is a hate, you know, is a hate crime, right? It, it's, you know, it, you know, we're onto something, right? We're onto the fact that there is no symmetry between these terms, right? Um, yeah. But I think if we take that to the full extent, then we realize that that's the symmetry that underpins so much, you know, of what we think about our world. Absolutely. Let me ask you, um, back up for a minute and, and ask you a question about um, what I would just call like the, the literacy of the book. You know, it's interesting to me, and this is interesting to me about all of your work. I think it's, it's something that marks it as, as really pretty unique is the range of, of citations uh, you have. And in this case, in talking about colonial, anti-colonial, in some ways, I think you've answered this question. Um, but I want to re- reframe it. Um, when, in talking about colonialism, anti-colonial struggle, you draw on sources, you know, that range, you know, from contemporary to historical Latin America and the Caribbean. And I'm just always curious. I, I'm curious about this with all authors of, of articles and books, right? Which is what's behind those choices? What do those choices illuminate particularly well? And alongside that, I don't know if, if, if you sort of go there as, as a writer, but I'm also, I wonder sometimes, you know, if, if after you finish a book and we're all, you know, start thinking about the things we didn't say, you know, are there other sources that you think pull in a different direction? Ellison has come up, the sort of cultural question. Um, but, you know, what's behind your choices in, in your citations and literacy? And what do you think other kinds of citations might shift in in interesting ways mm-hmm. uh the book because we all everyone who reads this book will write after this book and mm-hmm. so write with their own citations yeah. i think it's a really uh, it's a good question you know and and i think there are a lot of pieces involved one of course is that being a short book there is so much that couldn't be you know included um another is to say that uh, you know again the early sort of intuition slash fascination led me to sort of just start looking around, right? Um, on the one hand, drawing from things that I already know and, and already am familiar with, the idea of uh, this sort of peculiar blindness for me, actually, the first time I really noticed it was, you know, 15 years ago in Venezuela, you know, living there and working there and, and, and just being struck by the shock um, with which elites, you know, responded to the resistance from the poor, right? Um, and it really betrayed the fact that very little was expected of the poor, right? When people rose up in 1989, um, in again, something that was described seismically, um, very much, you know, as a, as a sort of earthquake, as a sacudón, um, you know, and the shock that then was described as the loss of a world, right? When in reality, and for me, this is the fundamental gesture of a decolonial dialectics is an outward opening toward, um, what was excluded and invisibilized, right? So you, if we understand dialectics as a sort of internal rupture within a prevailing order um, in which the two sides are kind of bound to each other, um, here someone like Enrique Dussel adds this piece of like where he explicitly brings Marx together with um, with Emmanuel Levinas um, to say, well, there's also an opening outward, and that's the really decolonial gesture, right? The opening yeah. toward the you know unseen, the unthinkable, the unknown. 
um, which he doesn't understand in this sort of like trans-historical abstract sense, but very concretely as what was unseen by the existing order. Um, that that eruption, you know, that, that that occurred in Venezuela for me really set the stage for thinking through these kinds of blindness as a systematic phenomenon. But then, you know, there are more, I think, intentional um, pieces, right? Uh, you know, one is the, you know, the knowledge that I think, uh, you know, I my own literacy and my own sort of like reference points um, are often limited to Latin America on the one hand and the legacies of American slavery uh, on the other. Um, and so I did yeah. quite consciously, you know, uh, you know, seek to sort of fill this out and to ensure that there was always a connection with, you know, for example, North American settler colonialism, right? On the one hand, um, and broader structures of imperialism on the other. And there's a moment where I'm talking yeah. about Vietnamese struggles and uh, which comes up mm-hmm. a couple of times and, and trying to make, make sure that these are part of the conversation, because I think they, um, you know, I think that in varying ways and with varying uh, sort of degrees of complexity and nuance, these these relationships and these logics operate, you know, together. Um, so we we're talking about innocence, right? The innocence of American troops, uh, you know, landing in in Vietnam and then decrying the fact that they're ambushed as if they're the victims. Um, yeah, it seems yeah. kind of comical, but it's actually a, what I argue is a fundamental underlying logic of white supremacy that colors even sort of, you know, mass shooters of the present who would say we're under attack. And so we need to fight back. Um, um, and it's, you know, this, this logic really, I think, underwrites yeah, a lot of these uh, you know, questions. So that's a bit to say, you know, that there's some, uh, you know, working within my existing kind of uh, frames of reference, there were some attempts to stretch those um, you know, as well. And, and from a methodological perspective, I certainly moved beyond a political theory and historical framework to try to think more in terms of, of mm-hmm. cultural reference points, cultural frameworks, yeah. film, novels, things that are not always, uh, you know, easy for me to, to navigate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> I always think that when, you know, whether I give a talk or, you know, review of a book and, People are like, what about this? What about this? You know, we can all only read what we can read. But I, I, you know, that's also one of the features of the book I really like. And what I think gives it a really healthy manifesto character mm-hmm. is your ability to sort of elliptically point us to yeah. settler colonialism, to, to resistance in Vietnam, to revolution and war in Vietnam, mm-hmm. uh, and so forth. So let me um, conclude, uh, sort of ask you a sort of final question. Um, I mean, one of the things I thought reading the book, and I think this has really come out in your description of it, is I think that anti-colonial eruptions really brings together everything that you've written. I mean, that 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 from from the World Without Police book to the People's History book. Uh, and the two books in between, I think it really brings them all together to make them, to get them on the same page. Not that they were on different pages, but they had different voices, the different orientations and aims. I think it really brings them back on the same page. And I, for you know, all of us who write for a living, um, I think there's something really envious <laughs> about having the moment where you get to to write something that synthesizes your previous work. And so I, I really love that this book, I think, functions that way. But you're also not an old man. 
And so I presume, uh, and not to, not to say, you know, what's next sort of just as you get to try to catch a breath from, uh, this flurry of writing over the last few years, but I'm curious how, you know, what, what, what is after anti-colonial eruptions for you? What new literacies, what new projects, what new visions, um, whether it's specific works or just really, you know, what's your orientation as a thinker and writer in these next steps? I think that's a, it's a it's a good question. It's a difficult question. I think um, it's interesting to hear it described as synthesizing a lot of things because it's um, I can see it right, but it's one of those things I can see it when you say it. Um, it operates sort of between the theoretical and the concrete in a way um, that is you know, that splits the difference. I think a lot more than my than my previous uh, books. I it would agree with that. Tries to bring you know the different you know. Uh, questions that I've been concerned with together, of course, you know, a world without police reaches toward the global, but is still very much grounded in, you know, racial capitalism in the United States, you know, is yeah. a way of diagnosing the police. Um, it reworks some of the, the themes from decolonizing dialectics, but again, shifting from a diagnostic uh, frame a little more um, toward an, an active frame, right, toward the setting into motion of those oppositions um, and, and understanding uh, the motion that is already there in the world, uh, you know, in, you know, in, you know, in process, right? Which is one of the questions, right? There are things happening around us all the time and struggles, and yet we have ways of uh, neglecting those or undermining them or discrediting them. Mm -hmm. um, and so, part of it is is a question of overcoming certain, you know, tendencies toward um, immobility in the present and to and to embrace that, you know, those struggles and, and those those moments. I think it's important to say that sort of in an autobiographical way, this book, but also the, you know, A World Without Police um, are products of unemployment, you know, are products of being sort of pushed out of academia in ways that were devastating in some ways, um, but incredibly mm -hmm. productive in others. And the, the main way as well, I mean, well, one way is that people are like, how the hell did you write this many books? And I said, well, not having a job helps, uh, you know, gives you, gives you some free time. Um, but I think the more important question is, I think, methodological, because it really provided a bit of sort of methodological liberation. And it's not that I was bound, I think, previously to political science, political theory, or the strictures of sort of academia, but suddenly not having those present um, and suddenly being able to, uh -huh. uh, you know, think, you know, from a sort of carte blanche view of like, what is it that I want to and need to speak about and write about um, was a, you know, a different experience. I think we all go through this, right? Like, it's like, you write a dissertation, that's for a small committee of experts, and then suddenly it's turned into a book. And yeah. so you're like, oh, what do I really want to say? And I think this is yeah. just a sort of radicalized version of that, um, that allowed me to, you know, to really, you know, try to think, um, you know, think through uh, important questions for the present, where that leaves me I think is, uh, you know, uh, is still an open question, um, you know, uh -huh. like precariously employed, but still kind of employed now. Um, and, and, you know, you know, trying to dig into some of these questions, you know, I've got some work that I'll be digging into on Du Bois and on black reconstruction. Um, but after that, it, it's really, it's really unclear. And I guess the answer is mm -hmm. I have no idea. Um, and I want to sort of let the dust settle a little bit. Um, you know, and think a little harder. Um, what I can say, though, is I think that we're moving into, you know, we're already very much in, a, a, you know, a cycle of revolt that's global. Um, that's been going on now for 30 to 40 years, depending on how we count it. That's been 
you know, you know, very much, um, you know, palpable in the United States for some 10 mm -hmm, years. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, and that's not going anywhere soon. So I think, you know, anything that, that I do moving forward will be, uh, very much oriented, you know, toward, uh, maintaining the unity and the coherence and the sort of like, uh, you know, sharpening of those, you know, of those political struggles. Yeah, I have to say, I mean, you, you know, we are in this moment of, of, of uprising and revolt. And for that reason alone, I would say uh, this book is very much needed and eyes on it will um, deepen commitment and insight. And I think breathe uh, a lot of distinctive energy into those struggles. So thank you so much, man. I really, I, I love the book. I love your work. And it was fantastic to have a chance to talk with you and, and hear you, you know, narrate, you know, in and out of the book. And uh, I really appreciate your time, man. No, thank you. It's a great uh, conversation. All right. Take care. We live in a time of comrades and cowards, the dividing line between the two becoming starker by the day. All love to the comrades, nothing but scorn for the legions of cowards in academia and beyond, for whom only the inimitable words of Aurora Castillo will suffice. One day, the apolitical intellectuals of our land will be interrogated by the poorest of people. You will have nothing to say. A vulture of silence will eat your guts.